0: Sound kind of down. This has something to do with the snow outside? Are you sick and tired of hearing that? Hello. Um, next weekend we're going to have a actual boxing demonstration up here, so you don't want to miss. I'm gonna put some gloves on and knock one of our pastors out. So make sure you're here for uh, next weekend, uh, and that's all I'll say about that. All right. We're in uh, the second message of our series, "Unseen." And we are talking about what is known as spiritual warfare. And uh, last weekend, Pastor Kyle did a great job kicking off our series, and one of the things he mentioned is that there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, they may not be, they call themselves Christians, who don't believe in a literal personal devil, but they do believe in evil forces in the world. In fact, I would say to you that most non-Christians believe there are forces of evil in this world, supernatural forces. Unfortunately, a lot of people who do call themselves and are Christians who believe the Bible, who believe in a real devil, believe in evil forces, still get things really mixed up. They draw their belief more from novels and media and other people's opinions than they do from what the scripture says and for good reason. Number one, not a lot of people talk about this in the scriptures. When it is talked about, it's usually reduced down to a couple of verses put on the armor of God, but nobody gives anybody a panoramic view of why evil exists. That's because when you start getting into that realm, it's kind of like studying prophecy in the book of Revelation. It's not easy to understand and sometimes it leads us into areas where there's disagreement. So I've decided to go ahead and enter that area. We're going to take a panoramic view of evil as it's woven in the fabric of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I'm gonna say some things that you probably have not heard before. And at first, you're going to say, I don't agree with that. And my question to you is, why don't you agree with it? Because it differs from your opinion, or it differs from how you truly have read the Scriptures and see it interpreted. And if that's the case, then we'll agree to disagree. Is that okay? And later on, you'll realize that I was right. But anyway, that's, <laughs> that's what we'll do, all right? Um, and, and so, you know, that's the risk of talking about a topic like this. Now, if you're here today and you're a skeptic, Uh, I'm gonna guess you have some interest in the spiritual realm. At least you'll hear how we we view that, how I view that. If you're a believer, I'm hoping this is going to actually strengthen you and encourage you. So I want you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter six to a very well-known passage that's often used to preach on when we're talking about spiritual warfare. I'm gonna be covering a massive amount of scripture today and that's why we put these things online so you can watch them later. I have to move along fairly fast, so i got to stick with notes, which I normally don't do, but it keeps me on track. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, a final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So the Apostle Paul believes in a real and literal devil. And he also believes that there are many rankings and orders of power in the unseen realm around us. The question is, how does Paul know that? And of course, we could say by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that's true and also the inspiration of God's Spirit through the Old Testament. See, Paul was an expert in the Old Testament. He understood what the Old Testament taught about spiritual warfare, and he brings that to bear in what he says in the New Testament. The problem is many of us don't read our Old Testaments, we don't understand what it says about spiritual warfare, and so that's why we're gonna take a journey back into the Old to understand what Paul's saying in the New Testament. And when we do this, we have to ask ourselves, what did it mean to people who originally received the teachings of the Old Testament? Don't read back into it your modern view. Don't read back into it necessarily even the New Testament. But ask yourself, what did they believe? What did the ancients know about the supernatural world that we have forgotten or we have dismissed? So I want to take you back to a strange story, strange place to start. But I want you to turn back, if you can, to 2 Kings chapter 5, or choose to. Otherwise, jot it down. Later on. While you're doing that, i welcome everybody who's joining us online as well. Second Kings chapter 5, we meet a man named Naaman. Naaman's a Syrian commander who's loved by his king because he's won many battles, but Naaman has leprosy. There happens to be a captive Israelite girl, and she tells Naaman that there's this prophet in Israel called Elisha. And Elisha's a man of God, and perhaps Elisha, to the power of God, can bring healing to Naaman from his leprosy. So he gets orders to the king, and he goes in search of Elisha. And Elisha refuses to come out and meet him, but Elisha sends his servant to him. And the servant says to Naaman, here's what my father, here's what the prophet says, dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be healed. At first, Naaman rejects that. Why should I do it in the filthy Jordan River? We have cleaner, better rivers at home. But Naaman's servants say, no, do as he says. And so finally he submits and he dips in the river and he's healed completely. Now he has a face to face meeting with Elisha, and here's what it says beginning in verse 15, now, 2 Kings 5. Then he turned, excuse me, then he returned to the man of God, Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. Now, what he means is, I believe there's no more powerful God than your God, the God of Israel. He's the most powerful of all gods that exist. So accept now a present from your servant. Verse 16. But he said, As the Lord lives, this is Elisha speaking, before whom I stand, I will receive none. I don't want your money. He urged him to take it, but he refused. The name is said, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth, for from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifice to any God but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes to the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter, he said to him, go in peace." Now, why is it that Naaman wants two mules loaded with dirt from Israel to take back to Syria? It's because he understood something that the ancients understood, and that is there were gods over territories. And he's now been in the territory of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He believes that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is more powerful than Ramon, the God of Syria. So he wants to take some of God's dirt with him, right? He's going to take it home. And I don't know what he does. with It doesn't tell us. Does he make a little plot of dirt in his house or outside of his house? And there he stands and kneels and prays to God because he's got God's turf there. So God's there. Or when he goes to the temple because he's gotta be the, you know, the, the, the arm for the king to use when he bows down, does he have some of that dirt in his pocket? And as the king worships Ramon, does he worship Yahweh? We're not told. All I want you to grasp is this idea that existed for the ancients that there were territories ruled by various powers and gods. Scholar Michael Heiser, who's written a lot about this, who I depended on greatly for my research on this message says, geography in the Bible is cosmic. Ground is either holy, meaning dedicated to Yahweh, or it is the domain of another god. See, I'm still not convinced. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 26, David is on the run from Saul. And David has this brief encounter with Saul, and he says to him, why are you chasing me? Why are you pursuing my life? And then God, and then David says these words in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 26. For they have driven me from my home so I can no longer live among the Lord's people, and they have said, Go worship pagan gods. Must I die on foreign soil from the presence of the Lord? David believed that God was everywhere present. That's not what's going on here. But what he's saying is in cosmic geography. The gods influence all this other territory out here. I don't want to go and be in that territory. I don't want to be under their influence. I want home. Why can't I be in Israel where God is worshipped? Why can't I be on God's turf and worship my God? Daniel chapter 10, Daniel introduces us to the unseen realm. Daniel in other places tells us that around the throne of God are myriad unseen beings, supernatural beings. But he says this about some of them. This, this, this angel comes to Daniel, and reveals to him, he says in verse 13 of Daniel 10, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Verse 20, then he said, do you, not, do you know why I have come to you? But now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So who's this prince of Persia, and who's this prince of Greece, and who are these kings of Persia, and Michael, the prince of Israel? These are unseen beings. He said, I'm doing spiritual warfare here with these beings, and Michael has to come and help me, and it's one after another, and by the way, Michael is your prince. The Prince of Israel, I believe that's true, by the way. And that helps me understand why it is that Israel has survived when they should have been annihilated so long ago, why they always seem to come through. I believe it's because God has given authority to one of his divine beings to oversee and protect his plan for Israel. So all I want you to get with me now is the fact that there is territory divided up amongst these various beings. And now I want you to go to a story in the Bible that many of us are familiar with called the story of the Tower of Babel. It takes place in Genesis chapter 11 if you want to turn there with me. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the scene after the flood. And after the flood, the descendants of Noah have been told to multiply over all the earth and to subdue it. It's what God said to Adam and Eve in the first place. It's like the flood is over and God's saying, okay, did you, do you guys understand me now? You need to be obedient to me spread over the earth, subdue the earth, and manage it for me. It was God's original intention in the first place. But instead, the people consolidated on the plain of Shinar, and they built this tower or ziggurat, and we had have, we have them in the Middle East, and they found remnants of some of these ziggurats. And the ziggurat was dedicated to a god. It was kind of a connection between earth and, and, and heaven, so to speak. So the idea here is, we're not gonna obey you, God. We're not gonna scatter. We're gonna be one people here, and we're building this tower up to you so you can be here with us and be our patron God. Which goes totally against what God wants. And so we read these words in Genesis chapter 11, beginning at verse five. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Verse 7. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language, the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole world earth now when I was in school I was taught that in verse 7 when it says come let us go down when the Lord says come let us go down it's a reference to the Trinity the Father Son and the Spirit the problem with that is is this number one that's reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament it's reading into it something the people then didn't understand number two why is it that God would know something that the rest of Godhead would not know how is it that God would say, I have a separate idea, let's go down and do this? It doesn't make any sense. What does make sense is that God is speaking to someone else when he says, let us. And I believe, and I agree with Michael Heiser, that God is actually speaking to a council of divine beings. See, where do you get that from? Why does God need a council of divine beings? He doesn't need one. He chooses to have one. Just like God doesn't need human beings, but he chooses to create human beings, And it is to them that he says, I'm going to go down and do this. Now, what's interesting is that God, when he does this, when he scatters them, he does it in a singular, and the Lord went and scattered them. So let us, that'd be like me saying to you, let us go out now and have pizza I'm buying. I'm not really going to do that, but anyway. (laughs) I say let us, but it's me who's doing it. See, so where do you get this divine counsel? Where do you get this idea that there's this, there are these sons of God, small s? All I have to do is look at other passages in the Bible, like Job chapter 38. That's why it says spiritual warfare, the unseen realm, is woven throughout the Bible. In Job chapter 38, verse 7, the NASB, New American Standard Bible, it says, when the morning star sang, that's a reference to angels, together, and all the sons, small s, sons of God shouted for joy. Job 1 6 says, One day the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord. Psalm 89 says in verse 5, The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. See, I thought Jesus was the only son of God. He is the only, capital S, son of God. In the Bible when it says the only begotten son of God, that means the only unique son of God. John tells us that Jesus has always been, that he was with God, that he is God. So don't don't compare the two. It's like the Bible calls us the children of God. Well, that doesn't make us Jesus. He's entirely separate from us. These divine beings are his creation, therefore they are called this special group, the sons of God. Now, God gave a wonderful gift to his creation, both in the spiritual realm amongst the spiritual beings and in the physical realm amongst human beings. The gift God's given us is called free will. It's the best gift and most dangerous gift but it was necessary if we were gonna be different, set apart, if we're gonna relate and know God. God didn't want to make robots. And so what happens is there is a, quote, small son of God, one of these beings, who uses that gift and he goes rogue on God in the garden. In Genesis chapter three, the devil. And when he goes rogue on God, he leads a rebellion against God, and that rebellion includes human beings who he deceives and says, follow me, let us rebel against God. But the devil is not the only rogue, angelic, or supernatural being. There are a whole host of others mentioned, for instance, in Genesis 6, 2 Peter 2, and Jude verse 5 and 6. And I don't have time to go into those passages of Scripture. The fascinating is some of the most strange and difficult passages to understand the Bible. At the gathering, we're going to do a Q&A about that if people want to tonight, so you can come back to that. My point, though, is I want you to understand there are these beings created by God, and some of them rebelled against God and led human beings in rebellion against God as well. Now, we're not done with the story of Babel. There's more to it. See, there's a little brief commentary in the Bible about the story of Babel. And it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 32. And I'm going to read to you this commentary in two different versions, in the Living Translation and the English Standard Version. The reason I'm going to do that is because there are newer versions with the best scholarship behind them, with better studies of, for instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what happens is that some of the scholars, they're able to dial in on certain words and phrases and get greater clarity than they had before. Doesn't change any doctrinal issues, doesn't mean your other Bibles are bad or wrong. And that's the case when it comes to this passage of scripture. I'll show you what I mean in just a moment. So for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse seven in the New Living Translation. Remember the days of long ago. Think about the generations past. Ask your father and he will inform you. Inquire of your elders and they will tell you. Now here comes the commentary on Babel, verse 8. When the Most High assigned lands to the nations, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the peoples according to the number in his heavenly court. For the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. Listen to it, the English Standard Version, verse 8, Deuteronomy 32. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is the people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. In some of your versions, like the NIV, it doesn't say the sons of God or heavenly beings. It says the sons of Israel. That was all under older scholarship. There's a little prejudice there because they're having a hard time thinking about, you know, and accepting the idea of the sons of God and how they interpreted the phrase there in the Hebrew. But recent scholarship, now the Dead Sea Scrolls, helps us see that no, what was the Sons of Israel is better interpreted, sons of God or the heavenly court. Which just makes a lot more sense because you see, at the time of the Tower of Babel, Israel didn't even exist as a nation. They don't come into being until the next chapter, and then only their, their founder, Abram. What's going on in this passage of scripture? What's going on, and you'll see this in a few moments when I, when I take you to another passage of scripture, what's going on is that God, in essence, is saying, look, you don't wanna obey me, you don't wanna follow me. You don't wanna let me be your God and, and, and go my ways. So I'm gonna scatter you, and I'm going to put over you the divine counsel these spiritual beings, and they are to influence and guide you back to me. But I'm choosing, I'm choosing a person out of you like I created Adam, I'm choosing this person called Abram, I'm calling him out of paganism, and I'm gonna create a nation out of him, and that nation is going to be the source of bringing all the other nations back to me again. That's why it says, for instance, in the book of Genesis chapter 12, verse three, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. That's why Paul said in Acts chapter seventeen, verse twenty-six: From one man he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. But what happened is that those sons of God, instead of leading the nations back to God, led the nations away to God, away from God and led them to themselves. Michael Heiser, the scholar, writes and says, this is the Bible's explanation for why other nations came to worship other gods. Until Babel, God wanted a relationship with all humanity. But the rebellion at Babel changed that. God decided to let members of his divine council govern other nations. You say, how do you know that? I don't necessarily agree with how you're interpreting that. Then turn with me for a moment to Psalm 82. Say, why all these passages of scripture? Because when you read the Bible, you have to always read it in context of everything else that's being said. Psalm 82 Listen to what it says there, beginning at verse one. It says, God presides over heaven's court, over the divine council. God has called a meeting, so to speak. And judgment's about to happen in the divine council. It says, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? So he's talking to these beings. Give justice to the poor and to the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. Verse 6. I say, you are gods. You are all children of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth for all the nations belong to you. God judges his divine counsel for the rebellion. I'm going to take your immortality away from you because of what you've done. You've led the people away instead of two. That's why, for instance, in Deuteronomy 29, verse 26, it says, instead, they, meaning the people of God, turned away to serve and worship gods they had not known before, gods that were not from the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 17, they offer sacrifices to demons which are not God, to gods that they had not known before, to new gods only recently arrived, to gods their ancestors had never feared. Now with all of that, let's come back to Apostle Paul. Do you see what we just did? Remember I said Paul's an expert in the Old Testament? We've gone back to the Old Testament and tried 30,000 foot view, maybe 60,000 foot view. We've journeyed over the Old Testament to see what did they think and believe about the supernatural realm. What does God tell us about that? And we're back to the Apostle Paul. And now I think Paul's words will make more sense to us. Listen to him again. Ephesians 6.10, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you'll be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting, he's talking about us, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities in the unseen world, against mighty powers in the dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. We're involved in spiritual warfare, he's saying. There are all these realms, turf and territory, that's working against us, and we live in the midst of all of it, he says. There are many more passages where Paul talks about these rulers, these authorities, these beings, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19 through 21, he talks about it. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, he talks about it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, and Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, he talks about these rulers, these principalities, these powers that are at work around us. So you see, Paul and the New Testament writers believed in cosmic geography. They believe that there are these princes, these rulers over various places, perhaps over the Twin Cities, perhaps over your community, who speak into the media, who speak into politics, who speak into all kinds of things, and breed and bring corruption and temptation. And of course, we easily go for it because of our evil hearts. You know, I'm saying this and I'm thinking, what are they thinking right now? What are people who are watching online thinking right now? And I'm guessing some people are thinking to themselves, I don't know if I really believe all that. That just just sounds too weird to me. Do you realize that people who aren't believers have more faith in the unseen realm than a lot of believers do? If if we were to put on a seminar and put a big board out here that said, you know, teaching this weekend how to become one with the forces of the universe, we could probably sell tickets to that. And we get all kinds of people from all kinds of religions and backgrounds who'd be fascinated by that. A friend of mine told me that, I think it's next Saturday, there's going to be like a thousand witches gathering in Washington, D.C. to put a hex on the Supreme Court. There'll be like some, I don't know, 20,000 or more outside who can't get into this event. I'm not making a political statement here. I'm just simply saying to you, the world has no problem believing in the unseen realm. What's wrong with us as believers? Why would we doubt that? Why would we think it doesn't exist? Why would we take it for granted? Why would we bury our head in the sand and become victims of it? See, that's the greatest trick Satan has is to get us to minimize and not think it's the real deal that it doesn't exist. Let's go back to the Old Testament for just a moment. In the Old Testament, where was God's territory? Ever thought about that? Where was God? What was unique to God? Well, at first, it was the tabernacle amongst his people, wasn't it? There was the presence of God in the Ark of the Count and the Holy of Holies. Then when they got to Israel, it was where? It was in the temple in the Holy of Holies. That's where you found God with his people. And Israel became his land and his people, very unique to him. But something radical happened after Jesus came. God changed his address. And everybody here who's a follower of Christ knows his home address. What is it? It's your life. It's your life. That's his home address today, you. Because the Bible says he lives in you. You're his property, you're his possession. And when we come together like we are in this room, we're all God's people together. We are his territory. He's here in our midst where two or three are gathered together. There am I in the midst of them. When are we going to wake up to that reality? When am I going to wake up to reality? Every morning when I get up, I get up and I contain God. God contains me. I don't belong to myself, I belong to him. And wherever I go, he's going with me. And whenever we gather together like this, he's here with us. But we look and act so often in an anemic way. Like we're a human organization gathering around an idea rather than the living presence of God. God will only be alive to us to the degree we acknowledge his presence and activate and interact with that presence. I'm not sure you believe that. I'm not sure you believe that. I sometimes wonder if I believe that by the way I act and behave. But God is really, say, are you really sure God indwells me? Is that, are you really sure about that? I'm absolutely positive about it. Listen to 1 Corinthians six 19. Don't you realize that your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. Or how about what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. And what union can there be between God's temple and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they will be my people. Paul's saying, listen, God not, just, not only lives in you, but when you're all together, he's among you. He's among you. Jesus, in Revelation, walks among his church, it says. Verse 17, therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So I jotted down some thoughts based on all that. I wrote down, you and I are God's holy ground. We, together, are his holy dwelling place. Do you believe that? This is God's sacred ground right now. Somebody asked you where God is, you could point to 6630 Shady Oak Road. We're right here, right now. He's here. Take off your shoes. Remember what God said to Moses? You're standing on what? Holy ground. Why? Because God was there in the burning bush. Reverence me, honor me. I'm in the house. I wrote down, do you realize that everything that is not occupied by God is occupied by someone or something else, demonic, that's influencing it? How else do you explain the way the world is these days? That's why scripture tells us to come apart from the world. It says be in the world, but not of the world. And the picture there is don't put one foot in God's territory and have your foot in the enemy's territory. Don't think that you can love and worship and honor God at the same time love and worship materialism or love and worship sex or love and worship some other issue. You can't have feet in two territories. It'll destroy your life. It'll rip you apart. God says, come all the way over into my territory. Be totally committed. Be totally surrendered to me. Then let's go into the enemy's territory and take it back. That's why Jesus says, Upon this rock, I'll build my church, and not even the gates of hell shall prevent it, shall stop it. So everywhere you go as a believer, if you're truly surrendered to God, you should be able to go anywhere and everywhere with absolute victory and confidence. Because it's not you that's going, you're like this vessel, You're you're just carrying God there, or maybe a better way for me to say it is God's carrying you there to make his presence known. And when you show up, things should shake up. Because there's this unseen presence, greater is He that is in me than what He that is in the world. Well, who's in the world? All kinds of demons, all kinds of spiritual powers that are at work. We don't need to live fearfully. We don't need to fret. We don't need to bite our fingernails if we are where we're supposed to be. Now, I want to give you a really practical story about this. I was a couple of weekends ago, or a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to do a Skype with a global partner. He's a remarkable man of God. I'm going to be with him next year in his space, and I'm looking forward to it. But when I speak with him, I feel like I'm speaking to one of the apostles. I feel like I'm talking to somebody back in time in apostolic times. I can't tell you his name. His life is constantly being threatened in his family, and I can't tell you where he is because we want to protect him. But he's been sharing and and was sharing with me just how God is at work where they are, which is a very difficult place. He shared with me an incident that happened where they walked into a village, he and about three or four others, and they were walking through this village. They were praying for the village, trying to discern what God was doing, what evil spirits were there, and a man came out of his house and said, who are you? What are you doing here? Are you Christians? He said his friends didn't really want to say who they were and why they were there. He's a very bold man, and he said, we are Christians, He said, stay right there. He said, as we stood there, the villagers started gathering around us. The man went in and brought out of his house his eight-year-old son who was covered from head to toe with sores, infected, oozing, not good. The man said to him, I've heard about your Christians and your Christ. I want you to ask your Christ to heal my son, and if you don't, we're going to stone you. He said, some of the villagers had stones in their hands. He said, we went to our knees. He said, I began to pray over that boy. And he said, God said to me, I will heal the boy by tomorrow morning. And he said, I said to God, can you give me three more confirmations? And God spoke to him three times in his mind, and his heart. I'll heal him, I'll heal him, I'll heal him. He got up off his knees and he says, your son will be healed in the morning. He said, I'm going to go to the next village, but I'll be back in the morning. Which he had to do some real convincing. That he wasn't just simply saying that and going to run away. He and the others managed to go to the next village and he said, we spent all night in prayer until God gave me a vision and in my vision I saw the little boy playing outside and everything was good. So I went to sleep. Woke up the next morning, he said, I hiked up a very steep uh, uh, mountain to get to that village and he said, when I got there, the father came running to me and I saw the boy like I saw him in my vision out there playing completely healed from head to toe overnight by God's power. He said... He said, the man looked at me and he said, you are a God. And then, and then when he told me this, I thought, now you sound like the Apostle Paul. He said, I looked at the man and I said, I'm not a God. Don't you call me a God. Why do you people call everything outside of you a God? And then he preached to him who the true living God was. The man and his family converted to Christ. The man announced to the village, we're following Christ from now on, went into his home and started pitching out the idols that he'd been worshiping. I asked him, I said, why don't we see that in America? He's never been here. I said, why don't we see that in our country? Why don't we see God moving and working that way? And he, he just quickly gave me two answers, like, like he was primed for it. And the first answer he said, he said to me was holiness. He said, the anointing, the presence, the power of God can't come if there's not holiness in the life of his followers. Prayer and fasting and obedience to God and coming apart from worldliness In other words, what he's saying is what I've been saying. That is, you got to be all in God's territory. You got to be totally surrendered to God, not compromised morally, ethically, or in any other way, fully yielded to God. Then the power of God can be demonstrated in you and through you. Secondly, he said evangelism. He said, we see the most supernatural things happen when we engage people who don't know Christ. Other than that, we don't see so much. But when we're out there and we're facing enemy territory, God shows up in miraculous ways. I thought to myself, this all makes sense to me. The church in America today is so spiritually compromised. So many Christians are living in both worlds, are not fully yielded, fully surrendered, fully dedicated to God. Religion is a compartment in their life. They give adherence to it once in a while, maybe twice each month. If that, they don't pray much. They don't read the Bible much. They are compromised in their living. There's no purity. There's sin in the camp. God can't work. Just like there was sin in the camp of Israel. And God said, Ichabod, I'm leaving you. So I, Jesus in Revelation walks to his churches and said, I like this, I like this, but I have this against you. Turn and repent. That's not a real popular message today, is it? Hard to get people to give money to the church and you preach a message like that huh it's not a popular message to hear that in the church this day we don't want to be told there's sin in the camp maybe what those unusual maybe there is no sin in the camp i know i have to examine my life every day and make sure i get both feet in the territory where it belongs but the other thing is the church in america today is so unengaged with lost people We just think about ourselves most of the time. We behave as consumers. We come and we receive and then we criticize it if we didn't get it the way we wanted it to be. Rather than realizing we come here to get in, to be filled, to be encouraged, to be be with God, to to celebrate and worship his presence so we can leave here and go shake up the world. Well, two of you like the idea. (laughs) to go shake up this world. When Jesus came to this earth, he modeled for us how he wants us to continue to be in this world. When Jesus showed up, man, he shook things up. He fed hungry people. He showed love to children and to women who were despised and so ill-treated in those days. He caused the lame to walk, the mute to speak, the deaf to hear those who are sick to be cleansed, those who are dead to be raised up. Everywhere he went, he shook up the demonic realm. The demons shuddered at his presence. The same thing should be happening today when you and I show up. Same thing should be happening. Say, oh man, oh no, our pastor's getting Pentecostal on us. We're supposed to be Baptists, oh no. That's another demonic lie. Why do we we have to hide under labels and then say, well, because I'm this label, i got to be this way. I don't care about my label. I just want to be a follower of Christ. How about you? Isn't that what it's supposed to be about? We're supposed to be followers of Christ. And when you show up and I show up, it should shake up this world. I've been thinking about this so differently. There's a sea change going on in my own personal life these days. I've been walking into places lately uh, like I walked in my favorite little coffee shop. I don't drink coffee, I drink tea. And I walked in there this morning and a thought went through my mind, shake it up, man, shake it up. Pray for this place. You've entered into enemy territory. Greater is he that's in you than he is in this world. Pray for the people in this place. Pray for everybody coming in this place right now, this week, that God will change their lives, that God will interact with them. And I thought, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. When you and I show up, listen, spiritual warfare, we should not be afraid." When you and I show up in the anointing of God, when you and I show up in the confidence of who he is, folks, I'm telling you what, it's the devil, it's the devil and the demons who are afraid. So we got to stop believing the lies of the enemy that tells us we're powerless, that cause us to fear the evil one, and to come against him in force, because greater see he this in me and he that is in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity for us to be in your word today. Lord, we may not all agree on all exact interpretations, but I think we can all agree we live in a world that's hostile toward you and hostile toward us because it's influenced by demonic forces. But God, we thank you that you're more powerful than those forces. We thank you, Father, that you will defeat them. You have defeated them in Christ. Help us, Lord, to get serious about you. Help us, Lord, to go into this world in victory. And help us, Lord, when we show up, to shake things up. Not because of us, but because of he who lives in us. In Jesus' name, amen.